Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. atmosphere, strange thing happens to man's body and mind. Barry Sullivan and Norma Bengel take you into the most fantastic science fiction adventure ever filmed. Emergency! Emergency! Conditions desperate. Little chance of survival. Help us. Mark, look! What have you got? The Galliot! Bert, get me a fix on this right now. Wes, Brad, controls. Planet of the Vampires. Harboring a form of life worse than death. Planet of the Bloodless. Creatures who take men's bodies, but attack like vampires. I'll tell you this, if there are any intelligent creatures on this planet... They're our enemies. In this outer space world, the living dead try to escape into life. Salas. No, just his body. And I'm just one of many beings on this planet. And we're fighting to survive. It's imperative that our race continue to exist. We arranged for several of you to kill each other so that we could take over your bodies. You are our last chance. No, never. We'll all of us give up our lives to save our own race.
Okay, hi everybody and welcome back to another episode of Wild Wild Planet. I am Adrian Smith and I am joined once again hold, hold on, by Adrian. Rod. Adrian, yes? he called the podcast Wild Wild Planet. <laughs> I think I'll probably keep that in. Welcome everybody. <laughs> <laughs> We're actually called Wild Wild Podcast, but I'm thinking about Wild Wild Planet because that's a film that we've got coming up very shortly. Mm. Um that's really funny. Yes, my mind just keeps going to that. And why, why not? It's a great movie. But it's not the film we're talking about today. Although I think uh, this film, today's film, and Wild Wild Planet were in production, or at least pre-production, post-production, around the same time. There's a little bit of crossover. So, yeah, that's really funny. Thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> well, that's, um, that, that's okay. I know, uh, listening back to previous <laughs> episodes, I have done ridiculously <laughs> stupid misstatements myself where I've, I, th I think instead of Martin and Lewis, I said Rowan and Martin, which is something completely different. So it doesn't, it yeah, doesn't matter. That's fine. Well, thank you. So this is my co-host, Rod, who is here to uh, pick me up on things that I get wrong. And to make mistakes you, of my Rod. own. And, yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's something we all we all do and it gives listeners something to get cross about so that's fine <laughs> anything um, to generate interest there we go yeah exactly exactly how are you today rod i'm doing pretty well doing pretty well excellent you've um, got lots of exciting blu-ray related projects that you can't really tell us about in the pipeline well there are uh, yeah there's at least one coming uh near the end of this year that uh that i can't talk about quite yet of course uh, it, it is common knowledge that we, uh, Troy Gwynn, uh, my podcasting partner, and I uh, have done a commentary track for Tombs of the Blind Dead for uh, Synapse here in the States, and uh, that's going to be coming out, I'm thinking, later this year, <laughs> sometime in 2021. Mm. I'm well, not privy to the release you know, schedule. Synapse like to take their time, so who knows? Yes, yes, but the, that, that is quite all right. Uh, there are a few other uh, commentary tracks on the horizon as well. Um, that, that uh, will involve uh, me once again talking about uh, the films of Jess Franco with various other people. So that's 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 on the horizon. That's that's something to look forward to. At least for me, uh, if if you enjoy commentary tracks with my voice, then you can look forward to them as well. <laughs> yeah, that's very good. And in my other podcast, Second Features, we've actually just been invited, my co-host Laura and I, to do a commentary track for a um, what you might describe as a cult British horror film. Um, Excellent. So that's yeah, that's our first one. So I will be coming to you um, offline, not during the podcast, but I'll be coming to you for commentary advice. Uh, um, be very nervous. Just be terrified yeah. the entire. No, I'm kidding. Okay. Yeah, that'd be good. Just <laughs> just hear me <laughs> panicking all the way through. Um, but yeah, so that's an interesting world to be in. I'm also writing a few a few booklets for um, for upcoming blu-rays and uh and yeah so we're we're both managing to spend most of our spare time just going on in some way in some form about old films what a shock that what a shock that we would we would we would do this now for about another another film yes <laughs> yeah exactly like as if we aren't already doing it enough here we are talking about old films and <laughs> <laughs> but today's movie so we i talked about a season is Italiani nello spazio, um, which is Italians in space, and the title of that season does, of course, uh, relate to today's film, 
which is I'm going to talk about that more in a moment but the Italian title of today's film is Terrore, Terrore nello spazio or Terror in Space but it is of course better known to English speaking audiences as Planet of the Vampires yeah now I don't know about you but I haven't really spotted any vampires in this movie no 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 and as a matter of fact uh <laughs> If I had not been prepared by reading about this film uh, long before I got to see it, uh, the absence of bloodsuckers would have been quite a problem for me. But mm. uh, the fact that uh, that's the that's the choice that AIP went with for an American yeah. title is, I, I mean, I understand it to a degree, and there's a way to justify it within the story. But at the same time, there are better titles. Yeah. So actually, I've got a thing. I, so um, I'm using Tim Lucas's book again on Mario Bava because Planet Vampires is a Mar is classic Mario Bava mm -hmm. science fiction. Um, Mario Bava does science fiction very differently from Antonio Margariti, which, as we'll see when we will perhaps make more of a comparison when we do get to Wild Wild Planet. Um, very different kinds of films. But uh, Mario Bava was very interested in doing a science fiction film, and he brought this story. So the film Planet of the Vampires, or Terrore Nella Spazio, is based on a short story that Mario Bava found in a magazine called Una Notte di Ventuno... No Let me start again. <laughs> called Una Notte di Ventuno Ore, which means one night of 21 hours, or a night of 21 hours. And so he'd read the short story about this... Um, crew of the spaceship have crashed on an alien planet and they have to stand guard all night but the night lasts of course 21 hours and they all gradually get killed off and it's all very weird and that was the story that he took to this producer Fulvio Luchisano and this producer had I believe co-production arrangements with a Spanish company uh, and also AIP mm -hmm. so Mario Bava took the story to him and said I want to make this film and call it The Shadow World so they, he commissioned a script by two Italian writers I had to write this all down I read through Tim's chapter and then I've actually just written this out to make sense of it good idea so, uh, so here I go so it was translated into English and sent to AIP who sent it to their European guy Deke Hayward who was based in London he was he was overseeing British and European production. So Deke Hayward didn't like that script and demanded a rewrite. So they gave it to Ib Melchior. Um, now, Ib Melchior, he's somebody perhaps you're more familiar with than I am. But I believe he's been responsible for some uh, some pretty well-known cult movies. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, just before this, uh, he was he was uh, he was known for uh, having written um well, a, a really a, a successful film. I'm, I'm not sure how profitable it was, but Robinson Crusoe on Mars, oh uh, yeah, which came out in '64, which is a, which is a great great little movie. But uh, mm -hmm. he'd also been involved in um, so, some some other movies of, of of different different levels of quality, shall we say? Uh, mm -hmm. Angry, Angry Red Planet, which is one that I have a lot of joy in, and uh, uh, he'd uh, crafted uh, the English language screenplay for Reptilicus. Which uh, you know you, you 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 can enjoy that movie on whatever level you want to, but I do love it. <laughs> and mm -hmm. uh, uh, he went on to make uh, a a little movie called The Time Travelers uh, as well, which I think is a, a lot of fun. But mm -hmm. the uh, the fact that you would call Ib Melchior in to do 
rewrites on this or to try to make a script out of this story is not is not a shock. He was definitely seen mm. as somebody you could count on to get quote unquote get science fiction and to be yeah. able to translate it into something visual for the screen. And he seems to be so well trusted by Sam Arkoff at AIP that apparently they paid him up front before he'd even written anything. When you, <laughs> so and when you know anything about impressive. AIP, when you know anything about <laughs> AIP at all, yeah. uh, and I, I do highly recommend reading um, Sam Arkoff's book about oh, his great. life and career, uh, the, yeah. the, the fact that they paid him money up front will tell you that they, you know, they, they really must have liked this guy a lot. Yeah. So then, so Ed Melchior, he wrote this draft um, synopsis for his version of the story, and he called it The Haunted World. Now, that sound, that might sound a little bit familiar to anybody who knows Mario Barber's <laughs> yes. films. Uh, so they couldn't call it The Haunted World. And then Sam Arkoff started calling it Haunted Planet. And then the final draft of Ed Melchior's original script was called Warlords of the Outlaw Planet, which is a great which... name. Which is a great name for a different kind of film. Yeah, I don't know what film that is, but it's not this one. So, <laughs> so he sends, so he sends this script back to Italy. Mario Bava sees this script, gives Ib Melchior loads of praise and says how great it is. But then he also gives it to an Italian writer, Alberto Bevilacqua, who then rewrites it completely and calls it for the first time. We get the title Terrore nello spazio, or Terror in Space. So. Then Sam Arkoff finds out that the script has been changed again. So he sends Deke Hayward from London to Rome to go and figure out what's going on. Deke Hayward talks about this, um, how he spent most of his time in Rome with Barber, just going to restaurants and uh, drinking wine. Yes. Um, which is what you do when you go to Rome, I think. So that's fair enough. Um, and the Italian script featured a lot more nudity. They were trying to make it a bit more of an adult film. Hmm. than Deke Hayward was happy with so um, he kept trying to take the nudity back out which I, I, it appears that he did <laughs> very successfully so then the, so that script was then called The Outlaw Planet so we get, we've still got that bit then they went back to The Haunted Planet um, then Ib Melchior took that script and wrote it in English again and called it Outlaw Planet then Warlords of the Outlaw Planet and then Warlords of Outer Space, which again, great title, but not, not this, this film, film at all. Uh, <laughs> so then it became Planet of Terror. Then it was called Terror in Space. Then they shot it under the title Terrore Nello Spazio. Then AIP watched it in Rome and decided that they wanted to call it Planet of Blood. And then uh, just a few weeks later, they released it as Planet of the Vampires. So it went through quite a lot of script changes and apparently when they were shooting they still hadn't decided on what they wanted the end of the film to be and we can we'll get to that in the plot summary but the their original the original ending of the the short story is very different to what Ib Melchior wrote but then Barber didn't like what Ib Melchior wrote so they came up with a compromise but this was after they'd started shooting um, but also according to the so I had a look at the BFI database to see what they had on Planet of the Vampires the British Film Institute and according to their database the film was also known at various points as Beyond the Sky and Space Mutants oh. I know 
Well, out of so, all these titles, uh, <laughs> just for, from your, not trying to create your own, but just out of the ones that we know were attached to the film at different times, mm. which which is your preferred title? Because it'll always, unfortunately, in my mind, be Planet of the Vampires, but I do not consider that to be the perfect title for the film. Mm. I mean, I like I like Terror in Space, but you could argue that really they're not in space, they're on an actual planet, so maybe it needs to reflect that a bit more so yeah. maybe planet of terror although um, that sounds like one of roger corman's 1980s films yeah um, but this being the 60s at least it would have you know it wouldn't have it wouldn't have felt like it wouldn't have felt that way then at least so i think haunted planet is probably the most accurate title that see that to me seems to be the title that i, I think i cannot I, I cannot believe that they missed the the chance to have such a commercial, in my opinion, a commercial title, a sellable title, as Haunted mm. Planet. It just seems like yeah. a, a perfect... First of all, it really does describe the story. Yes. In, in that, uh, you know, the way the way things play out with the with the ghostly possessions and the, 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 the horror elements built within this science fiction story. It's just, it, it seems like the perfect title to me. Mm. And it was released by AIP on a double bill with Die, Monster, Die. Um, yeah, after they which, had claimed that they weren't going to be doing double features anymore, yeah. which is which is an odd occurrence. It's, it's, it shows how I, I I don't know if that's definitely what what was going on there, but it's just like did, did they not trust either of those films to like carry themselves <laughs> alone at the theater? It's I mean, bizarre. Yeah, Tim Lucas makes the observation. This isn't my observation, but obviously, Die Monster Die is based on the Lovecraft story, The Color Out of Space. And Color Out of Space would also make a great title for Planet of the Vampires. It, so. it would have been a pretty good title if they decided to cop it. <laughs> but yeah, they, that's true. They, they missed a trick. They could have called this one Haunted Planet, and then they could have put it on a double bill with Haunted Palace. <laughs> oh, you're right. I, I, you are correct. That would have been a good double yeah. feature bill. But yeah, this yeah. is true. So yeah, so Haunted Planet is probably the most... Um, most accurate and, and, and evocative of, of what's actually going on in the film um, but I do like the fact that the and I mean the costume design for this film is fabulous yes and they they do have those high collars um, and which looks like it's based on the classic Dracula cape so there's a kind of suggestion that our space crew maybe they're the vampires in some way I don't know well, that's, 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 an, that's, that's an interesting idea. I've, I've, mm. I've always loved those black, uh, those black outfits. No, they're amazing. And and they, they look, they, what what I what I like about them is they seem every time every time I watch this movie they seem perfectly in keeping with what you think uh, would be worn by a crew of a spacecraft in you know in the future. Yeah. But at the same time, they also look really really cool. In other words, right. they're not just—they—they they don't seem like exactly the right kind of design, but they also seem like something that just is extraordinarily neat, as something that yeah. really fits within the the aesthetic that they were going for. And then, as the movie goes along and things get creepier and creepier, having them clothed in these black outfits uh, just continues to add uh, visually to the the creepy factor, and also. It was. It's a very smart design, considering how uh, often those black outfits have to stand out against a multicolored alien backdrop. So, mm. well, there is a weird moment when they get changed for no reason into orange jumpsuits. 
Oh yeah, and it turns out turns out there was a there was a reason yeah. visually, yeah. Yeah, but um, in turn, yeah, it didn't really quite make sense that they would just randomly get changed for one scene and then hop back into the black suits again. But yeah, if I knew, if I had the money, I would um, commission a costume designer to make me one of these things so I could wear it to parties. I think it's amazing. You're a very strange person, Adrian. Thank you. If no, if no uh, one has ever told so... you that before. <laughs> So this film is um, is an Italian, Spanish, and American co-production, and that's kind of reflected in the cast. We could talk a little bit about the cast, and it was shot at Chinachita Studios. Um, now Chinachita, the biggest, I believe they still are the biggest film studio in the world in terms of studio space. It was just vast, um, which is interesting. Obviously, this film is so small in its budget, and most of the set. That you're looking at is miniatures being reflected in mirrors and all kinds of clever things it was doing so it must have been shot in this the tiniest soundstage at chinachita i was lucky enough to a few years ago to go to chinachita studios and have a tour and it was like one of the best days of my life it was so cool to walk around chinachita and just imagine all of the great films that you know come out of that place um including this one but obviously just hundreds and hundreds so many of those movies that you know and love from italy were shot or at least edited <laughs> uh, or, or, the, or the score was recorded at chinachita um so yeah that was pretty exciting they took us to a sound stage which which has been renamed the fellini stage because it was fellini's favorite sound stage oh. and i noticed in the floor that there was a big panel and I asked them and they mentioned that it was um, basically there's a swimming pool underneath. They can fill it up with water. So then I put two and two together in my head and I said, is this the, stu is this the studio where they shot Caligula? Because I don't know if you how well you know Caligula, but oh, there's yeah. a big sequence with a swimming pool. And they're like, oh, yeah, that was in here. So <laughs> and it was just such a surreal moment that I'm standing in the room. Where porn where, was shot. No, I'm kidding. Where that happened. <laughs> <laughs> amongst many other classics so that was pretty exciting but anyway i love italy a lot and i've probably mentioned that before and that's probably my motivation for doing this <laughs> um podcast so of course any excuse a few were, were on a, a different trip but i also went to italy one time and went and took photos of myself all over the spanish steppes and that was only i mean tourists go to the spanish steppes all the time mm. but for me that was specifically because that's where Maria Barba set the girl who knew too much. So um, anyway, yep. so yeah, big fan of all of that. But anyway, so getting back to whatever we're calling this film, let's call it Haunted Planet, just to really confuse people. Just to let's confuse everyone, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, should we talk just briefly about some of the main cast before I head into the plot synopsis? Because there Certainly. are a couple of well-known, there are a couple of well-known names in the film this time. Um, in a smaller role, somebody who would go on to become very significant in Italian cinema is Ivan Rasimov. Um, it's pretty hard to watch any cult Italian movie these days without finding Ivan Rasimov <laughs> in there somewhere. True. We'll we'll run across him again in uh, in the future of this uh, particular yes. series. But yes, mm. uh, he's got a very striking face. He's someone who once you see him, I mean, we've talked we, we've talked before about Italian actors who turn up again and again in a lot of different films, and you immediately recognize them because of their very striking features. But he is one of those guys. 
Um, yeah. So so many uh, Italian crime films in the seventies. Um, uh, Cult thir- uh, Cult Thirty Eight Special Squad is absolutely one of my favorites, and the tough oh, ones right. and uh, things like that. But he was also in Spasmo, which is just a really really great film. The the, the uh, Your Vice is a locker room, and only I have the key. All the colors of the mm-hmm. dark. Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward. He's so in, he's so he's in a bunch of giallos and crime yes. movies in the seventies. He became yeah. one of those guys who just he he was he was ubiquitous to a degree. There's this mm-hmm. there's this joy in seeing him because you realize oh, okay your associations with him are of the type that you immediately make you glad to watch this guy again on the screen yeah. uh, even though he's often playing pretty especially in the 70s sometimes he's playing pretty nasty characters yeah i mean he's great as the villain in um uh which one's it called eaten alive that's very good yes. where he plays this kind of jim jones type character uh, in this cult in the middle of the jungle but then he's also in um, one of Rogero Deodato's films Ultimo Mondo Cannibale or Last Cannibal World yeah um, didn't he also do he did another one of those cannibal films The he did Jungle Holocaust and Jungle Holocaust um, the Umberto Lenzi film is that the one that's known as Jungle Holocaust? Got so many different titles. I can't remember. I, I just I, I was I was surprised when he turned up in a couple of Emmanuel films in the seventies as well. Oh, uh, Deep Deep River Savages was the film that I was thinking of. Also called The Man from Deep River or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Um, so yeah, Ivan Razumov. We're obviously going to talk about him in a couple of episodes' time for his role as uh, Darth Vader in the humanoid (laughs) (laughs) which is gonna be fun but yeah so he's he's i think i think this film was one of his first he's very early on so he plays carter who doesn't have a lot of lines but he gets to run around in one of these great suits and uh then dies eventually um but the big name the starring role is barry sullivan who's an actor that i'm not massively familiar with but i think he so he was the kind of aip casting they wanted an American star. Yeah. So they got Barry Sullivan in. And was he somebody that you're familiar with from other things? Because he's not a name I know particularly well. He's someone I knew from classic Hollywood films. Uh, I mean, right. he, he was in a number of movies uh, that I've run across, you know, in my voracious film eating appetite. <laughs> Just mm-hmm. the, the you know, things like Bad Men of Tombstone. He played Tom Buchanan in the uh, 1949 version of The Great Gatsby um, he was he was just in a lot of movies. Uh, he was never, as far as I can tell, he was never a, a huge star, but uh, he's he he's quite a good actor, and he's one of those guys who obviously Hollywood could count on. I mean, he was in things like The Bad and the Beautiful, and uh, mm. Cry of the Hunted, and he's he, he's 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 a good actor who, by the time he did this film. Had kind of gotten to the point where most of his career, he did the occasional film by the late by the late fifties. He was in things like uh, Sam Fuller's uh, Forty Guns and things of that nature. But he was doing a lot more television as well. Yeah. And so, having shifted more into the television thing, uh, which is primarily what he did in the late sixties all the way through the seventies, um, the the fact that he ends up in uh, an Italian production is not that much of a surprise. So he's someone who, he was never a big star on my radar, but he's definitely one of those guys who, once you start realizing what he was in, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen this guy in a a dozen things. 
I know he was um, he was a lot older than I think they wanted for their star. They wanted to have a kind of romantic leading man. And then he comes in and he's about 25 years older than the woman he's supposed to be yeah. having a relationship with. And I think there was some talk then of making her his daughter instead. But then they just kind of wrote all that out completely. Yeah, frankly. I think getting rid of the romantic subplot yeah. in this film was probably a smart move. Because that yes. is always the kind of thing that... That's what actually I think turns out to be one of the best elements of this film from the perspective mm. of someone who enjoys science fiction films of the 50s and 60s is that those those subplots always felt wedged in it doesn't matter yeah. how adept the script writer might have been or how good the actors were those romantic subplots in a science fiction movie always felt just pointless and so yeah. having decided because of the age of the actor i don't care what reason they gave to do away with it 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 imp- it it, it helps the movie in my opinion right off the bat oh yeah absolutely because there are two women in the crew of the ship and they um what i thought was really interesting here is that they are mostly just crewmates there's no like you said there's no romantic right anything going on and they're treated very much as equals they're they're put on guard they have jobs they have guns there's a little bit of screaming and then fainting which is sort of unfortunate but it but is by the and 60s large, after all yeah yeah but by and large um it's really positive i think that they're just treated very much as a as a member of the crew not as a woman like there's no the film that i thought of when i was watching this was coincidentally the other film that is often credited as being an inspiration for alien along with this one which was it the terror from beyond terror, space yeah, yeah. it's called because I'm pretty sure in there there's a there's a female scientist who's a member of the crew, but all she ever does is make everybody cups of tea. She's like constantly <laughs> the one who's bring, bringing the coffee. You know, yes. They just treat treat her as the woman on the crew who has to to do all that while the men make the serious decisions. And I, what I liked here was that the women are just getting on with their jobs, and there's very little sexualization or romantic inclinations or anything like that so yes you're right it definitely works in the film's favor um so the two female leads uh we've got an actress called norma bengel um who i believe was brazilian so i think she was brought in through the spanish co-production and then evie mirandi um who to help tell the difference between these women because they all everybody looks the same in their suits you can only really tell who they are from their hairstyles and things she's so you've got Evie Miranda Evie Miranda who's the blonde actress in the film yeah and then uh, Norma Bengal is a kind of a red-headed actress but I thought both of them were really good I liked what they did in the film I like uh, both Evie, of them as well yeah yeah Evie Miranda's was uh, was gr- a Greek actress but she she'd been in a few Euro spy films and things like that including one that um that I'm fairly familiar with because i wrote about it a lot in my phd called from the orient with fury right um which i also named my blog after that and i there's a chapter in my phd called from the orient with fury so um that film was pretty central and so i was quite pleased to recognize her um from that so i guess she's just like many of these people they just come to italy in the 60s and end up in hundreds of different kinds of films well, I mean, these these incredibly beautiful ladies, uh, a lot of them, of course, moved over from from modeling of one type or another mm. into the film industry because, 
you know, if you can even basically emote, then you know the the, the Italian film industry could find a way to put to put a beautiful woman on screen for for the the obvious effect that they want from yes. a beautiful woman. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. I'll be honest. I look at I look at uh, the films that she made. She her career kind of stopped around the uh, sixty nine or seventy. Uh, there was one more film she did in nineteen seventy four, but it appears that you know she had her her run in the film industry and then went on to do whatever else she intended to do. But I have mm-hmm. to say, you just look at the string of movies she made from you know after from the Orient with Fury, and you have a you have several Eurospy films there. I just look at I look at the list of titles and I think, hey, you know that would be a really good film festival <laughs> just to watch, yeah. just to follow her career, her small parts yeah. in these movies, just to see these sixties films. They're uh, exactly the kind of thing that a woman like a woman like her would be used to to enhance uh, their 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 uh, you know Paris when it sizzles. She in 1964 she played girl at pool number two. You know, thank God she eventually graduated to be able to have dialogue. But you yes, know, character, characters with names. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Not merely an ornament. But yeah. the uh, the the both actresses, I think, acquit themselves quite well in this. Um, mm. I think it's interesting. We should point out, as uh, Tim Lucas does in his book, that originally um, Susan Hart was supposed to play the role of the uh, of Sonya, the uh, the character that um, was eventually played by uh, Norma Bengal. And yeah. um, that. Uh, and to the point where she actually, you know, she came to Italy thinking that she was going to be doing it. Of course, Susan Hart was the uh, was the wife of one of the American producers, <laughs> uh, James yeah. Nicholson. That uh, was weird. I was re- reading about that story. So they got married. He 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 saw her in a film, fell in love with her, hired her for I think it was Pajama Party or one or, or yeah. one of those beach party films, and then he married her. And they went on their honeymoon and came straight to Rome from their honeymoon. But meanwhile, Sam Arkov sabotaged the whole thing for reasons unknown and issued a statement that no employees or members of the families of employees of AIP could appear in films. Basically, it's like he made a rule specifically to stop her from being in any more AIP films. Yeah. Really weird. (laughs) <laughs> I don't think it's as weird as you may think because I okay. think that it, that sounds to me a lot like a businessman realizing that his partner is about to start making decisions with the wrong part of his anatomy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so uh, maybe it's a good idea to establish a policy right up front, no matter how much it and no matter how much strain it puts on the relationship. This mm. is probably a good idea. Yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. But uh, it's a shame that they didn't tell her till she got there. But uh, so yeah, so what that meant was that they had to start shooting without a lead actress. It took a while to get Norma Bengel in, and so they were filming around her and the, the scenes that she was in and all kinds of things until eventually they were able to bring her in and finish the film. So the, it's amazing. This film is as good as it is when it was made under relatively chaotic conditions with very yeah. little money um with actors missing they they still didn't know what the end of the film was going to be the script had been rewritten in two different languages several times they still didn't know what it was called it's a kind of a miracle that we got the film that we ended up with well this is not the first time that i've heard these kind of productions these kind of chaotic productions described as uh, uh 
let's just say the end product being described as a miracle that it came out as good as it was. Uh, because uh, a lot of film productions apparently are this way because it's very easy to forget that for the people making these things, um, they are, they're, they're jobs of work. You know, you're, you know, the, 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 the situations that people encounter in their day-to-day job, imagine that being fitted around trying to craft a movie you know, all the little odds and ends, the, the problems that you run into daily and weekly at your regular job. And yeah, that's the kind of crap they run into there as well. Only a lot of this has to be visualized up on the big screen. And so all these, you know, somebody ate, ate, somebody ate too much lunch. And so they don't feel well enough to, to, to really have the energy for that scene they shot after lunch or, uh, uh, they had a fight with their wife or whatever the, the, yeah. the mo- that morning and it, and it affects the way they play a certain role or it affects you know even a some part of the crew it, it, these are the kind of things that, that fold into this without it being hopefully without it affecting the production too much and yeah, um, yeah I'll be I'll be blunt the day I found out that they didn't really have an idea of exactly how they were going to end this thing while they were making it was a shock because by then I had seen the movie and loved the ending. And so Mm -hmm. to not have known up front that you were going to go in that direction just seems madness to me because it's Mm -hmm. just, and of course this is all 2020 hindsight, but to me it's the perfect ending. Oh, absolutely. And it's interesting. The ending is very close to um, Ib Melchior's idea, but with less religious overtones, which I think is what Mary Barber perhaps didn't like. But yeah. will, let's get let's have let's talk about the plot and then we'll get to the end and we can discuss that a bit more. So sure. we've got we begin with two spaceships or we, we begin with some great electronic music, yes. which I'll put in a little clip of here. interesting electronic score thankfully this is one of the aip films where they didn't just whiz it away to les baxter to completely take off the original score and stick some jazzy 60s thing on so this is the proper score that that barber wanted which i thought was good yeah so anyway, and, and it seems that the only reason that that happened that they kept the original score was because uh they didn't have time to mess with it so. well yeah yeah which is which is a good thing um so we've got two spaceships, the Argos and the Galliot, which I think are sort of names from mythology. Uh, they've been sent to investigate a mysterious pulse signal emanating from the planet Aurora for the la- at least the last two years. And um, the ships communicate with each other. And I love the way that he has these TV screens between the ships. And in order, because most of the special effects in this film are done in camera. Yeah. And in order to have his guys in one ship speak to the guys in the other ship he basically just had the crew from the other ship standing behind the glass dome in the studio mm-hmm. and then they the lights are off and then they turn the lights on and he could pretend there's a crew in a different spaceship and then you turn the lights off again and the 
you know, you've, you've turned it off. I thought that was a very clever way of uh, of doing that in camera. Oh, it's brilliant. Um, and it, 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 yeah. it, it's, a, it's an effective, uh, low-budget way of doing it, and it also yeah. looks great and allows the actors to actually play off of each other. Yeah. I mean, most, so yeah, most, I don't want to spend too much time because this podcast could end up being hours long, but pretty <laughs> much all, with, with one or two matte shots uh, and process shots aside, most of the special effects were done in camera. And it's Barber using all of his skills that we've seen in films from um, Mask of Satan and uh, the Hercules movies, Hercules, yeah, yeah and, uh, and and all of that sort of stuff. Anyway, so the two ships uh, communicate. The Galliot is going to land first. Um, for, for the Argos, our captain, his name is Mark Markery, which I thought it's only really a kind of spoonerism away from being captain marky mark <laughs> so i might just call him captain marky mark now oh that's don't do that i'm going to i'm going to have i'm going to have a, a mental break if you do that <laughs> um so anyway so the galliot lands but they lose contact with them so um and mark's brother toby is on board the galliot of course it's his first mission so he wants to go and land to find out what's happened to them. And they land, as they're landing onto the planet, they're suddenly overtaken by an immense gravitational force, which it seems to involve the actors just kind of moving very slowly and being lying on the floor. Yeah, the, this it, is it, something it, that uh, it, it, science fiction <laughs> films, they, they, they often had to uh, to find a way to attempt to visualize uh, people in space or people landing spacecrafts being affected mm. by uh, multiple G's, and it's mm. it's um, the only the only really effective way to do it is is uh, you know to get that thing where we now know what what astronauts look like when they're being affected by these kinds of G's, which is the the force of it does kind of push your skin around a little bit, yeah. and that can be that can be done pretty effectively by blowing you know blowing high pressure wind into someone's face to kind of get that same uh, yeah. pressurized reaction but of course back then this is not something that they uh, either knew or did uh, and so what you have is uh, people acting as if uh, someone's standing on their back or for you know <laughs> tr trying to press them into whatever surface that they're lying against mm -hmm. as they attempt to move under such heavy g-forces but uh, mm -hmm. it's it's uh, it's one of the things you have to give movies of this time and I think they do it pretty well here yeah, it goes on a bit. I think that sequence is going to last true. a long time. But eventually they land, and as soon as they land, they all start beating each other up. Um, Mark, Captain Mark, seems to be the only person who's not affected, but everyone else just starts going crazy. And it would, it would appear to be because they all went unconscious, but he didn't. Right. So they've kind of woken up and then started trying to fight each other. And one of them, the ship's doctor, he l runs out of the ship without his helmet on, but then thankfully discovers that the atmosphere is actually fine and he can breathe. And then they all kind of wake up and they don't know what they were doing or why they were fighting each other. But uh, so it's all a bit of a mystery. And so they find themselves on this alien, what we could say haunted planet mm -hmm. um, with this eerie landscape of rocks. And I mean, it's basically some rocks, some smoke machine, and some purple and green lights, and that is it. And well, let's, let, let's, to let's pause here for a second. To um, yeah. let's pause here for a second to 
to point out the incredible storytelling effectiveness of the first chunk of this movie. Mm. We are given an incredible scenario brilliantly and in a kind of creepy and exciting way. When we have this, uh, you know, whether the, uh, the, the landing, the G-Force the uh, section of, of the landing is effective or not, it does get, you know, the immediate aftermath where these people are attacking each other and then as soon as, uh, you know, they, there's enough physical pain inflicted on their body, they, sna- they, they snap out of it. Whatever's controlling them can no longer control them. Mm-hmm. This, this whole section is a great setup. It is such an incredibly evocative, creepy, and the, the stakes are immediately elevated because as soon as they realize what's going on, and the only, the only reason that uh, one of them wasn't affected is because he didn't pass out. He managed to not pass out during the landing. Is It, 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 great. it communicates so many possible tripwires for the, for the cast as they, as they go along because it, you, they suddenly realize, oh, wow, so do, is this going to happen if we go to sleep? Is this going to happen mm. anytime, any, anytime any of us are quote-unquote unconscious? And then the immediate realization, oh, my God, this probably happened to the crew of the other ship as well, thereby yeah. immediately upping the, the, uh, the tension. And it's just an incredibly well-constructed opening to this entire section of the film. It just it works so well because each thing follows on from the next. You immediately get this progression. It's this stair stepping up of tension and suspense as with each revelation that oh my god this is this is this is not good. Oh my goodness, how does this affect that? And then at the same time, we're being constantly once they're outside the ship, we also get all this incredible visual stuff. So it's almost almost too much at the beginning where you're getting so much information. The story is presenting all of this stuff one, two, three at a time. And the audience is following along with these, uh, these pieces of information at the, uh, maybe just a little bit ahead of the, of the crew, maybe sometimes just a little bit behind because they give voice to something that maybe you didn't think about as well. And then, Mm. Oh my God, we've got to get to the other ship because no one's answering. And this probably happened to them as well. It's just, it's really effective stuff. Yeah, so you know, you made some really good points there, um, and it's a really good mystery that's set out right at the beginning. There's the mystery of who it, who is it that's been sending this message, um, what's happened to the other ship, why are they fighting each other? There's a lot of questions raised with no immediate answers, mm-hmm. but all and also as an additional mystery, the signal that they've been tracking for two years has suddenly stopped now that they're actually there, and so they don't really know exactly what's going on. But they decide to go and look for the galliot. And they have to cross this mysterious, smoky, bubbling uh, landscape. And that's when they find the other ship. And outside on the ground are some of the crew members who are all dead uh, with blooded faces. Like they've beaten each other to death, basically. Yeah. And that's obviously they realise that the same thing that happened to them has happened to these guys. And they go into the ship and they find all the crew. They're all dead. And also, um, they look around the ship, which is very helpfully identical to theirs, which means they only needed one ship one, set, yeah, not two. Ex- exactly. Um, now, one, there's a bit of the ship that is really important to the whole thing. Without this bit of equipment, the, the, then they can't get anywhere. And it's called the Meteor Rejector, which I thought was a really interesting little bit of science fiction kind of jargon that they've come up with. That this, this vital piece of kit that 
you can unplug and take away and hide if you want to but mm. without it the ship will basically just get hit by a meteor and die well but i will I say thought, we'll say did you notice th this is what i kept thinking every, every, even the first time i saw this movie which is when you realize that it's that that it's something that can be unplugged and removed very easily my thought was this is such a vital piece of equipment don't they have like two or three spares in storage but they don't <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, because yeah. that would be the reason you would make it so easy to replace is you've got you know if, if this one goes yeah. bad we've got another one you know <laughs> so they because the meteor rejector on the galliot is has been smashed in half by somebody's i think somebody's head has been smashed against it it looks like it's all covered in blood and broken um but yeah you're right they should just have a cupboard full of them but so they the basically the galliot can never fly again just because that bit is missing now it's broken and they decide to bury the crew because they found all the bodies except for a couple who are missing um so they bury them using twisted wreckage from the ship but what i thought was interesting is we don't see it we don't when we see the ship it all looks fine like we don't see it twisted and broken um but yet they somehow have got twisted wreckage to use to bury the crew. Um, and I, and the in reading in the the details from some of the uh, from the, some of the from the Lucas book, it's clear that this image, the image of using this kind of broken um, these broken bits from the crashed ship, um, that was something that um, it was one of the visuals that Baba definitely leaned heavily into, and wanted to mm. wanted to oh, include looks, in the movie. Yeah, it looks great. Yeah, it looks really really good. Um, so yeah, so they're buried and their the, their ship is damaged. Although thankfully their meteor rejector is fine, but um, something wrong with their battery. So they can't they haven't got enough power to take off. I think is the main problem, and they're going to have to stay there for possibly a couple of days. Although time seems to act yeah, there's strangely. some there's some repairs that have to get done. Mm. Yeah, and um, there's a great bit where I can't remember. Uh, you know more about Star Trek than I do. Is this are we talking prime Star Trek here, or is this before Star Trek? This is uh, this is just before Star Trek. Star Trek oh, okay. started uh, started uh, being shown on television in, in 1966, so the year oh, okay. after this. Yeah. This is before because the the sort of landscape that they're walking across in this in this planet, that's you know studio bound planetary landscape, it would would work very well in an episode of Star Trek. But also we see him, we see uh, Captain Marky Mark talking to the ship's log <laughs> uh he's you know it's like the sh ship's log uh captain's log stardate whatever and he's telling yes, the, yes. he's he's retelling it how he's recording this thing about how bad everything is mm -hmm. and how scared he is but he's got to stay really brave so that he doesn't panic the rest of the crew um and then he's about to say the year but he just gets cut off so we don't find out what year this is set which i thought was a funny little kind of tease and of course it's because, a great payoff because that that scene is is absolutely fantastic in that it also yeah. gives us um it, for, first of all yes we don't find out quote unquote what year it is but it also hides uh, uh one of the revelations that we get at the very end yeah. of the film because i think doesn't it say on the poster is this ten thousand years before or ten thousand years after or something like yeah a, yeah they're kind of gutting the they're kind of gutting their their ending there by by yeah. using that in some kind of advertisement for the film yeah but um so i mean yeah we might as well say this now so the original ending that ib melchior wrote was that there are two surviving members of the crew and they've been taken over by ghosty aliens which we'll talk about soon um 
and they end up having to crash land on a nearby planet yeah. because of the meteor rejector problem. Um, and that planet turns out to be Earth and they turn out to be Adam and Eve. And so it is actually like 10,000 years plus before now. And these guys were never human in the first place. They're from a different race and they're going to now... So that, so mankind, I think the idea was that... It's ancient aliens, these, man. Yeah, that you've got the sort of human side, but you've also got the soul, and the soul is the ghost aliens from this planet, which we'll talk about more soon, and, uh, and that together they become humans. And so, so yeah, <laughs> so that's that was the original ending, which Mary Barber didn't like, and they, they kind of eventually did come up with a compromise, which we'll get to. So anyway, but so he's panicking, but he can't tell anybody how scared he is. They, he's ordered that nobody can go to sleep without being watched over by somebody else. Yeah. Um, which, you know, being watched while you sleep, that's quite weird in itself. Uh, um, but, in, but on this planet, necessary. Yes. And so meanwhile, there's this great sequence now when uh, we go back to the graves and the crew in sort of slow motion as the smoke drifts across the graves they open up and these um the these dead crewmates who've been put into plastic bags kind of rise up in slow motion and tear off the plastic mm-hmm. uh, and they're all kind of zombified and planet of the zombies would also have been a good title for the film based on this yeah, bit. that's true that's true um but i think this scene is is obviously one of the key moments of the movie look everything about the way that it's shot in the slow motion and the the sound and the, the the smoke and the plastic bags everything about it is just so great it's a really good moment every time i watch this movie before uh, i got the chance to read the details of the production in uh, the lucas book i always wondered when watching the movie about how amazing the mist is uh mm-hmm. in these in these planetscapes and then to learn that it's not just one type of thing that while, while they were making the movie they used both uh, mist from dry ice and kind of the movie uh, fog smoke stuff that they would use that they use in movies, and one would would adhere closer to the to the to the floor, and one would drift a little up into mm-hmm. the air, which was which is what gives you so many of these shots where you have, like you say, in this creepy even even in slow motion, it, it becomes uh, this creepy thing where there seem to be. Uh, mists that are moving in ways that you know other pieces of mist in the same shot aren't moving it just yeah. it's one of those unearthly things that's just brilliant and the fact that it was achieved simply by combining two different everyday things is it, i mean it's wonderful it just makes me love the movie that much more i believe that they they used a similar effect in the film um that's sometimes called horror hotel or yes. city of the dead the christopher lee film great stuff and with that one that i mean the smoke is is like a it should have its own credit um <laughs> there are times when the it seems to be uh following people yeah and wrapping around corners and, at times. and that's a similar thing they use two or three different forms of fog to create that effect uh of, of it doing different things at different levels of the the close to the ground up in the sky um yeah so it's it is done really well here um, so we get so they there. It turns out that they've all risen from the ground, and eventually we find out that they're sort of possessed by the Aurans, the whoever it was that used to live on this planet, and the planet is dying. I think their son is dying, mm-hmm. and so they 
they've they're the ones who've been putting out this signal to try and attract people to their planet so that they can steal their bodies and then steal their ships and go to another planet to start again that's basically what we we find out is going on um but there's a lot the thing is with i mean the plot is good for this movie but describing the plot on its own doesn't really do it justice because like you were just saying it's so much about the visuals it's almost yes. the, the i mean and the, the the dialogue is pretty cheesy a lot of the time the plot is okay but what really matters is the look of the thing so just I, I just talking about you. the plot doesn't do it justice yeah the 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 story the story is is great it's a great science fiction slash horror story uh i will agree with you that uh, the weakest element of it is uh, some kind of pedestrian dialogue at times, uh, kind of generic dialogue uh, that could have honestly been punched up. And uh... <laughs> yeah, it's it's not great. And obviously, I think there was a certain level of improvisation as well, by particularly by Barry Sullivan, who's obviously had this got this uh, this script that's been written and rewritten and translated and things so many times that yeah. I think there was a certain level of just certain lines not really making any sense. Plus, you've got some people doing their lines in English, some in Spanish, some in Italian. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it doesn't totally work. But anyway, it's the visuals. So at this, so at some point here, we get um, Sanya and um, and Captain Mark. They decide to go out in search of answers because they've spotted something shiny in the distance, another potential ship. And they think maybe there are some answers there. And this is where we get to probably one of the main reasons why this film is often compared to Alien, which is that they find a long crashed ship by another alien race, but a race of giants, much bigger people. Mm. And we see these fabulous skeletons of um, of the of this race of people who'd crashed on on Aura and then died there. And they've clearly been there a very long time based on the the fact that the ship is all rusted up and these just there's a skeleton lying on the ground um but the captain still says he says something like you can tell by the calcification of the bones that they've been here a really long time or some something trite like that and it's like well yeah you can also tell because they're bones and they're buried <laughs> in the mud and, and this there's, ship dirt, is clearly, there's dirt and dust all over them yeah. this ship hasn't going anywhere that they've been here a long time i'm not sure you need to analyze the bones particularly but they go aboard the ship and this is where you see so you get this great sequence they're exploring this crashed alien ship oh it's amazing and, yes this yeah. is this is a great sequence and probably yeah. this is probably the sequence that would have guaranteed this movie a place in uh the imagination of a lot of people mm. this this sequence alone was was it was probably worth the price of admission for anybody yeah no it's really great obviously this is where so there's a lot of comparisons made between this film and Alien, although, of course, Ridley Scott always claimed never to have seen this one. Well, Ridley he did. Scott he wouldn't didn't. have had to have seen it because no, this, he didn't this, write is, it. this comes from the screenwriters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He never wrote Alien, so it's perfectly possible that they, those guys did. Oh, they, they did. They 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 were flat out honest about it. I oh, mean, they did, did they? Okay. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They they they, they were they were very clear about that because the uh, I mean th th this sequence is obvious. Plus, let's let's be clear. I mean the the entire reason people are on this people come to this planet in the first place is identical in both movies. I mean there's mm. a there's a, a signal that they can't interpret, 
but that appears to be some kind of distress call in both movies. Yeah. That's what draws the crew down to the planet's surface in the and first it, place. Yeah, and I suppose the difference here is that in in Alien, they discover that the signal was actually a warning telling people not to come. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, it's the Aurans themselves who've lured them here. Yes. And so what what happened with these giant aliens, we're never really sure, because presumably the Aurans must have tried to use them, but maybe their ship was too badly damaged when it crashed. Maybe the, the aliens died in the crash or something, but the Aurans clearly... It turns out the Aurans have been luring people to here for years to mm-hmm. try and get the perfect hosts to be able to escape. So finally, with Captain Mark and his gang and the, the crew of the Galliot, they finally got the bodies they need to be able to um, to be able to leave. But yeah, so in, sorry, in the meantime, I'm skipping over. So Mark and Sanya, they're trapped. They get stuck in this alien um, kind of, I don't know what it is, the engine, not the engine room. They're in the galley, would you call it? Um, oh, bridge. Mean, let's call it the bridge. They're okay. in the bridge, I think. It's like the main control room for the ship. Right. And they manage to reactivate it by so things start moving, doors close behind them, all the air starts getting sucked out. I'm not entirely sure why that would be a thing that you would need in a spaceship to be able to suck all the air out. Well, I mean, anyway. I'm assuming it has something to do with uh, preparations for the ship to take off. You know, yeah. you're kind of battening down the hatches to some degree. That's but, true. But who knows? These are aliens, yeah. man. <laughs> These are aliens. So, uh, but there's a great bit as well. It's really creepy where they somehow turn on a recording and you're hearing this alien language being spoken. And it's this kind of guttural, very deep sounds that are really spooky. We, and it freaks it freaks them out. It probably freaks the audience out as well. Yeah. And they, they, they have to figure out how to escape before they run out of breath. And uh, they eventually find a button that opens the door and they manage to get out. But in the meantime, their own crew are all slowly getting killed off. It becomes a bit of a slasher film from this point of view. And there's lots of, okay, we're going to go and explore in here. You, you wait out here on your own and stay guard. And every time I was thinking, no... Don't make people stand on their own and keep guard <laughs> because you're never going to see them again. It's just classic. You wait here while we go and do this thing. Oh, look, he's dead. That happens quite a lot in this film. And gradually their crew are all just getting killed off. Um, and also some of the crew claim to have seen dead you know, former colleagues. Um, and then they're not sure whether to believe them. Yeah, um, everybody seems of, to be getting a, a lot of unnerved, so it's hard to know if these yeah. these uh, sightings or these these fears that they're experiencing are something that's just being generated by their anxiety and their terror, or if there's something that you know that, something real that's causing them. So yeah, yeah. And then two members, the two missing bodies from the crew of the Galliot finally turn up, and um, and then. They uh, so that those two are we've got Captain Salas and uh, Kia, mm-hmm. uh, two members of that crew. They turn up and you know they seem fine, so they let them in. Um, and but of course, we know that they're not fine, they're actually now possessed by the aliens as well. And there's a great moment when one of them accidentally opens up his suit, and you see that his chest is all kind of ripped open and rotted, and um, he's clearly dead. And that's when now, at least finally, Captain Mark gets to talk to an Auron through this dead crew member, uh, Captain Salas, and he explains he explains to him what was going on, what's happened, 
why they're trying to leave and he offers him um he offers him a kind of compromise i mean what did you think of of the the hour and offer of sharing their bodies seems fair right uh, yeah and not, <laughs> not 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 something i would have taken them up on because no. <laughs> it just seems like a bad trade uh, mm. because i don't know what i'm going to get into but it is fascinating because First of all, you can understand the appeal because these people are, are aware now that there aren't many of them left and they could just be easily killed. But at the same time, the uh, the, the kind of Faustian bargain that's being offered here, I think, I think is fascinating to contemplate from the perspective of, well this is really the only option open right now. They're, they're, you know, we can either, you know, destroy ourselves, destroy, everybody can lose, or we can find a way to compromise. And it's just a question of, is this a compromise you're willing to make? Yeah. 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 It's like basically everybody dies or everybody survives, but mm-hmm. the survive the survival option may not actually be that great. After yeah. All. It may be because, something that you really don't want. Yeah. So, meanwhile, Captain Mark has got a plan. He's going to use some th- nuclear thermodynamic devices or something. They've got some nuclear timers um, that they just happen to have in a cupboard. They've got loads of nuclear bombs in a cupboard, basically. Well, you know, you you don't have any. No, not today. Oh, just, I need to pop out and get some up. more. Yeah, they do. Get they used um, up. they've got only they've only got one meteor ejector. But they've got loads of nuclear bombs, so um, <laughs> fair point. They just dis- yeah. they they realise that the Aurans are going to try and fly the Galliot, so they've got to bomb that ship to make sure that it can't take off. They've got to explode that one and then escape in their ship. So that's their plan now. They're basically down to about three people. There's Wes, um, played by Angel Aranda, uh, and then Captain Mark and Sanya. They're the only ones left. So they go and they they manage to destroy the other ship quite effectively, even though Captain Mark sees his dead brother in that ship. But, you know, so that's a bit of a sad moment for him. But then he blows it up anyway and they get back to their ship. And Wes has been tasked with fixing the batteries. He's got it ready. He's going to take off. They're going to leave the Aurans behind. And they do. They take off. They they get out of Auron. Uh, atmosphere into space and everything's fine right oh yeah, yeah. that's the end of the film it's a it's a happy ending it's great <laughs> so yeah the, and it's a really interesting ending so they think it's kind of a false happy ending we think everything's fine but then wes starts to notice that captain mark is acting a bit suspiciously and so he takes his suspicions to sanya which was perhaps not a good idea True, true. But then again, unfortunately, it does turn out that there was no good option for Wes at that point, no matter what. No. No, I mean, are we okay to... We, we, we can spoil the ending, can't we? People Folks, uh, if you if you are unaware of this movie and you haven't watched it before, I think we may have probably already kind of spoiled yeah. the movie, but I guess we're <laughs> going to dive headlong into it here yes. and just state some things outright. So be aware. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is available. This is a great film. This, I think this is the first movie we've done so far that's on Blu-ray. So you can get this, oh, yeah. and what, and you should. I I kind of wish that the um, the Blu-ray actually had the Italian language track, or or because I believe there was a slightly different edit for the Italian release. Yeah, I think the you're American right. Yeah. The credits were definitely different, 
but the Blu-ray currently only has the uh, the full American version. But either way, definitely get it and watch it. So the ending then. So Wes discovers, to his great horror, that he is the last human left on the ship. That Captain Mark and Sanya are both... We're not sure whether they're dead or if they have agreed to be co-symbiote hosts. Right. Or something a bit like Venom. Like or, or if is, the or if the RNs have found some way to take them over regardless. Yeah, because yeah. they don't look dead. No. But so maybe they're not dead. But so we've just got two Aurans, uh, and Wes, and Wes realizes, okay, I've got to stop them from getting to my home planet because the whole thing has been that we don't want to get to the home planet because they will just take over and destroy everything and make it all Auron. Mm-hmm. And so that's um. So what does he have to destroy if he's going to stop them getting home? Of course, the most fragile piece of equipment that they only have one of. <laughs> For some reason. The, the Meteor Rejector. And um, there's a great shot, which is actually in the trailer. Talk about spoilers. The shot of Wes smashing the Meteor Rejector is in the trailer for the film. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so he dies. He sadly gets electrocuted and dies but he's made this noble sacrifice to save his home planet so this leaves captain mark or what used to be captain mark this leaves the two of them now to have to think about what to do we'll never make it to their home planet or never make it to their planet we'll have to land on the nearest planet so they they look out the telescope and what do they see the earth the earth the little blue planet is very primitive it's so backward it's not on any of their charts apparently um and they use their super telescope to look at new york and they, they say was it they say they're so primitive they're still oh yeah they're still buildings making buildings out of, out of uh, stone yeah yeah <laughs> and what i love is that by by inserting that dialogue and that shot of uh, modern new york they uh they 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 definitely avoid the adam and eve problems so. yeah so it's a good so that was the compromised ending that they came up with that they still end up on earth which i think is a great idea because oh, that really it. pulls it really pulls the rug out because the whole time you've just assumed mm-hmm. this is a human crew from the future on a space mission but actually no they're from a different planet entirely but actually it's a little bit of a twilight zone thing i'm pretty sure there's an episode of the twilight zone where there's an impending nuclear war and some rocket some guys who've got access to a to the rocket program get their families and they steal a rocket and go into space before the earth is destroyed by nuclear well before their planet i should say is destroyed by nuclear war yeah and it and it ends up that the planet they are flying to for refuge is earth and that's the big twist at the end of the and that that kind of twist that's the uh that's the the perfect example of or one of the perfect examples of this film's stories kind of origin this comes yeah. from uh this comes from classic pulp science fiction stuff this is the kind of thing that um variations on stories of this type were popping up in science fiction uh pulp magazines as far back as the mm-hmm. the 30s this is you know at this point for for a science fiction lunatic you know who read voraciously this would not have been that new a uh, concept or that new a story no uh, no matter how impressed you may have been as a film goer in 1965 a science fiction reader would have run across this kind of thing multiple times yeah, sure, and, uh, and 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 it's great because this is 
this is a pulp story. This is a great science fiction slash horror story, and it and it is exactly the kind of thing that would have just popped off the page to anybody reading this stuff. It would have been beautiful because these are, uh, you know, I mean, you, you can go back to the origins of so many different things. I mean, like uh, Who Goes There, the short story that was turned into The Thing from Another World in 1951. You know, its origins are in the, the, pulp, the pulp stories of the time, and there, you, there once again, you have this, this horror story, this horror science fiction story, that has this great idea at its core, but it's also far from the first or last time that such a story was being told. Yeah. And so this kind of thing, uh, sadly, this movie wasn't, wasn't as profitable as everybody hoped it would be, especially in Italy, which is a real shame because yeah. I would love to have seen Italian science fiction, the, the whole industry just kind of turn its, turn its sights for a year or two on, mining the pulp science fiction stuff because Italy had its own pulp science fiction stuff mm. uh, at the same time. Uh, it wasn't yeah. just an American or British, uh, so, you know, bit of, bit of uh, fiction subculture. It's, it's something that was, that was burgeoning all over the planet. And to have been able to have had a success out of this movie, to, to see some more of this kind of story being brought to the screen, uh, I doubt it would have been done as beautifully or as effectively as Baba was able to do it of course yeah but the uh, the the pulp origins of this point to a missed sidetrack for uh, Italian exploitation you know this this is a rarity there are very few Italian science fiction films in the 60s and the you know because they just they didn't they didn't make money for whatever reason or they didn't make enough money I guess we should say you know, it's not like the Eurospy thing, which went on for about five years. And it's not like the, the, the sword and sandal thing, which went on for, you know, five or six years or seven years. And it's definitely not like, you know, a lot of the different genres, especially especially not the spaghetti western genre, which went on forever. Yeah. But the, uh, the, the missed opportunity here, uh, the, the, the thing that you'd like to have seen an alternate, an alternate uh, path taken is just, wow, pulpy science fiction tales like this being done mm-hmm. for a few years. Uh, of course, then we would end up with fewer Euro spy films, probably. But True. you know, and particularly films like this. Obviously, this is quite a serious. T- although you know, on the surface, it's pretty schlocky with them. But there's a quite a sort of serious philosophical thing going on here, and it's a little bit invasion of the body snatchers as well. And yeah, there's some interesting philosophical concepts going on, which go back to the original story, um, which there was an English translation of the story called Night of the Id. Which which reminds you a little bit of um, something like Forbidden Planet as well. It's this sort of psycho, whole psychological aspect of the whole thing. Obviously, well, yeah, what and we of had, course, the, the score for this movie seems to play yeah, very heavily on true. the score done for Forbidden Planet and as well. What we ended up with instead is what we're going to get to next time, which is um, the Gamma One films, which are far more uh, comic booky than, uh, yeah, than yeah. this one. Less serious. There's no. There's yeah. no. The the horror elements are uh, are toned down a good deal in those movies. Yeah. So I had a look, and uh, Planet of the Vampires did get a release here in the UK, but not until 1968. So it took three years mm. to come out here. But Bar- Mary Barber's name was fairly well known amongst British reviewers at that point, and the review is pretty good. It says this might be described as the triumph of mind over matter or of Barber over a shoestring budget and appalling dubbed dialogue. Given little more to work on than a handful of wooden actors peering agitatedly at papier-mâché rocks and muttering, quick, let's get out of here, or, for variation, let's get out of here quick. 
He does atmospheric wonders with pastel shaded ground fogs and cunning camera work. Uh, somehow, Barva manages to maintain a real sense of menace throughout, in spite of the struggle for survival against the cast's repeated and plaintive cries of, what is going on? And I think that's fair enough. <laughs> I would agree. It's, a, it's, it's a fair assessment of the film. But... Yeah. And um, it also got a, obviously got a quite a wide US release, and I found the um, Variety review, which is pretty positive, um, describes the colour camera work and production value as smooth and first class. Um, it calls the acting adequate, <laughs> <laughs> which is fair enough, again, I think. And the, it says the story is a bit heavy-handed. Um, I don't think so. Again, no. mm, um, and it refers to quite a lot of the sort of gory details of the, which I, the, we didn't really mention that, but the, some of the close-ups of their faces when they're all battered and dead is quite, considering this was probably shown at least in America, I would imagine this would be aimed at a kind of more younger audience. Probably. Um, it's pretty graphic. I mean, in the UK, it had an X certificate. So this would have been 16, wow. and, o 16 and over over here. So it's, um, Variety says anyway, as a psychological thriller, the main promise pays off, but the ending is not to be believed. Which, <laughs> well, I mean, taken it, they're a bit offended by that ending that somehow. I guess so, yeah. This is now the um, they've come to America, but no. But this is obviously you know this is possibly one of the best films that we're going to be doing in this whole season. I think it's fair. Oh, this I is agree. the one. It's the one stone cold classic of all the ten films that we're covering. Um, and well, I mean, for me, it's reason. it's it's one of my favorite Mario Bava films. Uh, yeah. I know that uh, you know real aficionados kind of look upon this as as not one of his best films. And the thing is, I mean, maybe, you know, technically or, or you know, uh, across the board on every level, it's it's not. But to be honest, it's my second favorite Bava film. My favorite Bava mm. film is Danger Diabolic, and this is my second mm. favorite. I mean, I've yeah. rewatched those two films more than a lot of his other movies that I think are probably better, uh, just because they appeal to me in a particular way. Um, yeah. The... You know the the the, be the beauty of this film to me is that it is one of the best. It's as if uh, someone watched the American science fiction movies of the the nineteen fifties and decided, well, let's make a scary one. And yeah. that's all. I mean, to be honest, that's exactly what I want. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. I, I I love the uh, I love the fact that it does feel exactly like what it pretends to be, and it does it just as effectively as they possibly could. And in most cases, actually outdoing what I would have expected a film of this vintage to be able to do. Yeah. I, uh, I absolutely love this movie. As far as a mm. classic, yes, obviously it's a classic. And, and one could nitpick here and there, which of course we did and do, <laughs> but that's true of almost any film, yeah. of course. But it's, it's done with love. It's, it's an affectionate ribbing. Yeah, this is, a, this is a great film. I, I love yeah. this movie. Every time I watch yeah. it, especially in the... Uh, in the uh, age since we've gotten it in uh, high def, I just find more to enjoy about it every time mm -hmm. I watch it. And I've mm -hmm. watched it in excess of a dozen times in my life. Yeah. No, it is. It's superb. And I hope everybody who is listening has uh, has also seen this one, or at least will now go out and, uh, and watch it. And like I said, even if we've spoiled the plot a little bit, the plot is not the really, is not really the important thing here. 
it's very much just sort of bathing in Mario Bava's visual style and and, and just marveling at what he pulled off on such a limited resources. Mm, um, yeah, the, I think the really budget for this was something like $200,000. Or yeah, well I mean Tim Lucas mentions that but he thinks it was probably even less because it doesn't look it looks like it cost less. <laughs> but no, it's very impressive for, for what he did. Um, thank you, everybody, for joining us again. This is a bit of a longer episode this time than normal, but I, I think the film justifies it. Um, thank you, Rod, for your input. Uh, you've, you've seen this film a lot more than I have, and uh, your insight has been very helpful. Uh, why don't you let us know, everybody, what you think of this film? You can tweet us. Uh, we're also on Instagram or you can email us as well, um, or leave us a review and tell us what you think there. That All of those things would be very good. Um, our contact information is all in the show notes. Um, so next time, as I've kind of teased up at the beginning of this episode, we are doing Wild Wild Planet. So I'm sure next time I will also get the name of the podcast wrong, um, <laughs> because that film will have been something that is on my mind. And, uh, a lot by the time we get to that one but anyway thank you everybody for listening thank you rod for doing this glad to do it glad to do it we'll talk to you all again soon bye bye Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.